Thanks for clicking into the Connected Hospital Podcast. I'm Lance Lunsford. I host interviews with some of the healthcare industry's most advanced and knowledgeable thinkers. Usually we are up and running at speed on technology integrated into the healthcare industry and specifically what that means for hospitals. But today we talk with Andy Davidson, former CEO of the Oregon Hospital Association, who recently retired and is now a principal founder of Hummingbird Hill, a consulting operation that deals largely with boards and executive leaders. Also in joining me is Stephanie Lim, my business partner at Groundswell Health, where we are both senior partners. It's great to have her on as well as we get some perspective and insight from her. Andy has a unique point of view looking now at how boards are able to engage their organizations in the time of COVID-19, what questions to ask, and how to explore beyond the day-to-day operations. Again, we're not totally and purely covering technology here today, but enjoy some insight from our friend and colleague, Andy Davidson, on the Connected Hospital Podcast. All right, Andy, thank you very much for joining and to talk to us a little bit about what's going on in healthcare and particularly the the CARES Act. Someone in your position uh, is going to really be a a great resource for us to talk to here about what's going on in the country, especially when Stephanie and I were talking about this earlier is because we want to find somebody that can really dig in to some of the um, the issues that are at hand for hospitals and kind of what that means for consumers. But obviously hospitals are under a, a terrible amount of strain right now. COVID patient volume is growing exponentially. And I think at a 24 hour period the other day in the US, we, we almost doubled uh, the number of, um, of deaths. So we see obviously in the news, we, we know about the mortality rate, but it's getting more and more significant. So talk to us a little bit about the context of uh, why or why, I guess, how hospitals are or aren't prepared for the demand that's coming in on their, the, uh, on them right now and, and basically the, the influx of patients. Sure, sure. Well, first of all, Stephanie and Lance, thanks for having me. Um, it's been interesting after having taken a couple of months off after retirement to sort of get my head back around what's going on. And I'd say, um, Boy, all the stuff that was true when I left in December is still true, and now we have this sort of added um, uh, uh, obligation and, um, and crisis on us. But I think you asked a good question, which is let's go back and take a minute and consider where were hospitals and health systems headed before any of this happened, right? I mean, we're only talking about a three-week period for the most part. Um, and, you know, if you, think of, if you think about it, there's just been this hyper focus on managing kind of the continued shift to outpatient services um, in the face of decreasing average length of stay. Um, and so what does that mean sort of for the inpatient arena? Well, I think certainly what, what we see data wise, and um, I think it's pretty much true everywhere you go in the country is you've got this decreased length of stay, but you've got this increase in acuity. And so, um, the people in the hospital are a lot sicker. They're requiring a lot more resource at a very time when payment mechanisms are really starting to kind of come into play. Um, you know, and there's lots of talk about the move from uh, volume to value and the notion of value-based purchasing. Um, and I think that some hospitals and systems are better able to move in that direction and some are working um, feverishly to get there, while others are, I think, not prepared. Um, you know, and I don't know if you guys sense this, and I don't mean this in a negative way, 
But I think there's a lot of hospital executives today who aren't that far from retirement who are saying, hey, look, let's get through in this current environment of more of a fee-for-service and let the, let the next leadership team really figure out how to manage that, that um, uh, notion about paying for value. Um, and I really have seen over the course of the last few years, people at all levels there. And none of it's right or wrong. I just think it's true that that's the direction that the world's headed. And um, those that are further down that path, both in terms of their own thinking, I think, but also in terms of having the data, information, the tools to manage that um, is key. But there's this other notion, I think, that's out there that, that really struck me in my last year at the association as I worked with hospitals and their boards was this whole idea that bigger's better. And, you know, there has been a move over the last five to seven years um, to, uh, to integrate. And obviously what we're so used to is um, horizontal integration, where you're growing by acquiring more beds and more hospitals and more facilities. Um, and there's some value to that. I think there's a lot of literature that questions whether there's immediate value and how big that value really is. Um, so that's one piece that's also been going on in terms of all yeah. these Right. Yeah, Stephanie and I, and actually when we were at the association, we, we talked about that a little. And there is, there's actual studies that show that that integration that has occurred, that promise of scale has not come to fruition. But and maybe we should save this for another video recording sometime because I love yeah. that you brought that up. But is, does that play into a little bit of the point that you just made about that the kind of some of the retirements that might need to occur because those folks have been doing business for the, the same way for 30 years. All of a sudden now you're going to, the idea of scale, the principles of scale, everyone understands, but they might not understand the implementation and operationalization of going to scale, shifting from a physician, a clinically and an integrated physician network with a hospital, one or two hospitals to now multiple hospitals in a giant system? I think it's a great question, you know, and I'm sure that you guys have seen success in that regard. Um, um, uh, and there, there have been times of challenges and failure, right? I mean, the, the notion about how do you bring cultures together um, uh, can, really, can really have an impact on how both fast integration goes and then also how successful it is. Where it really gets interesting now, so think beyond horizontal integration. Now think about vertical integration and the question, Lance, that you've just raised and that you and Stephanie have talked about. So you've got hospitals that are moving downward. If the hospital's in the center of, of the, the vertical line, down here you've got kind of retail medicine. So you've got all these clinics and minute clinics and dock in a boxes that they're going to to try and capture that end of the business, particularly as more docs are coming knocking on the door saying we want to come inside. But then you've got the upper end where they're moving more toward a partnership, um, an acquisition or the creation of the health plan. Um, and sort of if you're going to move from a volume to value model, one, you need the tools and the data, which, by the way, health plans are pretty good at. Um, and two, you need the ability to manage that risk. And if you can have control over all pieces of that, I think your chance of success is better over time. Um, so my goodness, think about the cultural challenges of bringing in those sorts of things where you're partnering with physicians in a way you never have before and employing them. And you may be up here looking at, um, you know, how do you bring a health plan into your business model? So all that's going on and it can't stop, right? But we're sort of on pause. 
Um, and to your point now, how were hospitals ready or not ready for, for kind of what they're facing today? Um, you know, I, I guess I'd be curious about your guys' take on this, but at the end of the day, it sure seems like everybody was running so hard in that direction. It doesn't mean that they didn't have disaster preparedness plans. It didn't mean that they weren't ready for emergencies, but something of this scale um, combined with, I think, a, a trend that would be interesting to talk about, which is there's a lot of just-in-time mm -hmm. purchasing and acquisition that goes on in our world, right? And I think that that has kind of come to, to bite um, the industry back a little bit. Um, and no one's at fault for it. But I think I, I had this conversation last night with my wife, who's done rural health policy for years and is now on the Medicaid side of things. The, the difference now is instead of it just happening in one community, you know, the, the, the tornado in Nashville, everybody comes together to help the folks in Nashville, all their colleagues from all over the country. You know, or, or what happened in New Orleans um, uh, during the hurricane and the floods. Now everybody's got to look out for themselves. Um, and it's just a crazy time. Stephanie and I were talking earlier today. It's like the Wild West just in terms of acquisition of supplies, materials, PPE. Um, so I don't know that anybody did anything wrong, right? Um, and the other question I think that's out there, and, and I'll stop, is there seems to be a lack of agreement what what responsibility counties, states, and the federal government have, right, in terms of pr provision of materials and, and other things, and what hospitals need to have on hand. Um, and, you know, I think the best laid plans are terrific, but if you don't have the materials, the personnel, and, and the resource to carry it out, you know, I'm not sure. So I've sensed a lot of finger pointing going on. Um, and meanwhile, you know, Hospital leaders and caregivers, man, they're doers. They just want to. They just want to be able to treat patients. Well, there's no other transition I think that would be better than, to talk about the CARES Act than a reference to uh, finger pointing. So let's let's uh, kind of get into to that a little bit because. You know, I think when we first reached out to, to talk a little bit about this, we were trying to think of who's a really um, great, uh, who's going to have some really great insight on the policy side of this that's going to be able to understand inherently the political undercurrent, but uh, take us out of the tip of that, our versus the talking points on this. So um, really, when you boil it down, um, what is in the stimulus bill for uh, hospitals and why is some of that important? I mean, um, I think a lot of these hospitals are going to be in a position where they are going to have to look 18 months down the line at what they're going to need to be communicating back to the community because ultimately we're going to have a return to uh, discussion about supplemental payments after this uh, $150 billion uh, package. Yeah, and I'll just interject here real quick before we, we punt it back to Andy of on the CARES Act, are we just funding things through that that we should have been funding for the last 10 years are we just making up for for deficits you know you talk about you know hospital preparedness i think you're right nobody's done anything wrong and you know we worked in lance and i worked in communications and you know one of our go-to talking points all the time was hospitals are prepared they practice they drill they have policies and procedures they they know what they're doing whether it's ebola zika a hurricane shootings is often where you know mass shootings is often where you know we use that talking point of hospitals are tested and they are tried and tested because they drill and they practice and they practice with all of their community partners 
And it feels a little cheap just to say that it's the scale of this event. You know, we can argue, you know, what did people know and when did they know it? But should hospitals have been more prepared? Should they have had more ears on the ground? You know, we, we pay a lot of lobbyists in Washington to kind of keep their ear to the ground. Should they have kind of heard the same conversations that our politicians were having in January and February? Or are we just such massive entities that, you know, even if we had that information, we couldn't have turned around quickly enough. Um, so I just throw that out there just from a, you know, how do we, how do we not look flat footed here when we talk about the scale of this event and actually know this is hospitals doing what they've practiced for so long. It is just the scale. And I think Andy, your point about it is now every hospital in every community. It's not just a single hospital in El Paso or a single hospital in New Orleans. You know, we haven't experienced anything on this scale and the, the, the disruption of the global supply chain. I mean, we are no longer a USA first, you know, buy everything in this country. We, we get a lot of our stuff from China, you know, and you can't right. underestimate the impact of, of what happened there in, you know, late December, early January on the supply chain of, of PPE. Um, so I think there, there's a lot of complexity, but how do we start communicating that now? Because I think Lance's point is, is spot on of we're going to have some explaining to do when the, when the, when the bill comes due, you know, for, for this massive um, stimulus. And, you know, hospitals are going to have to ask again um, for, for funding and relief because while $100 billion is a hell of a lot of money, you know, it's, it's, it's a drop in the bucket for what they're going to need for the next year and, and 18 months. So all that is to say, what's in the CARES bill? What needs to be in the CARES bill? Um, where do you see it kind of filling some gaps and where are some of those holes that still remain? Sure. Well, I, I appreciate the ask. I mean, I am, I am far from sort of the expert here, but I've certainly spent some time um, doing a lot of reading, been talking to um, folks, including at the American Hospital Association. Um, and I think you raise a, a really interesting point, which is, um, there have been things that we as a field have sought for some years. Um, and yeah, I think there's probably, there was probably a recognition that that's maybe an opportunity to undo um, some of what has transpired for the hospital and healthcare systems um, over the last several years. Um, let me start by just saying, uh, before I go into some of the detail that I'm aware of, one of the challenges that I think we have in our field is that hospital leaders and caregivers are um, sort of, uh, we're sort of our own worst enemy. And I mean that in the best of sense. I've never worked with a more resilient group of people in my entire life. They take challenges all the time and figure out how to work through them. And I think as hospital advocates, roles that we've played for years, um, we're used to saying the sky's falling because mm -hmm. the sky really was falling. Mm -hmm. And then hospital leaders turn around and save the day. Um, because they're so complex, their organizations, that ultimately when, it, when push comes to shove, they're able to move some things around to, to soften blows. This time, maybe it's going to be different. Um, you know, so when I, when I look at the CARES Act, one of the things that, that was helpful for me was kind of to break it down into a few buckets. Um, and then we can talk about some of the specifics of those buckets. But one is this notion that I think you and Lance are referring to, which is some additional funding. Um, so providers, uh, suppliers, um, are all looking at the possibility of significant additional funding, both through the form of grants and then increased Medicare and Medicaid payments. Um, you know, something um, 
uh, as straightforward as um, uh, in increasing by a given percentage payments under those programs. Mm -hmm. Terrific. You know, you can't leave out fairly qualified health centers. I'm on the board of an FQHC here in Portland. Um, boy, the dollars that we're looking at getting are huge because we are doing things that are so far outside of, of our realm, which frankly is helping keep the EDs, I think, in a better shape. So the hospital partners to, to them. But that notion of additional funding, and there's a lot of it. You know, I've read different numbers uh, in terms of how much will actually go toward that when you think about the, the increase in Medicare and Medicaid payments, but it is, it is very big money. Um, but it's really important money for a couple of reasons that I'll come back to. So one, additional funding. Two, um, the expansion of coverage for telehealth, as you mentioned earlier. I mean, that is really significant and I'm anxious uh, uh, after this component of our conversation to talk about how that may become the new norm. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I have had two telehealth visits just in the past week um, mm -hmm. because I couldn't get in to see a doc, right. um, you know, so, um, and they were, they, they were terrific and it cost me 10 bucks. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, as an insured uh, uh, individual, I found it to be both convenient and cost effective. Um, you know, there are other related initiatives, but I think uh, I read yesterday that a telehealth startup in Portland um, just got $8 million in seed funding. Right. So you, you're now seeing private equity coming in on the heels of the government really standing behind and saying, we want to support these services. The other side of the telehealth um, e expansion in terms of coverage is with private insurers, because private insurers have now agreed for the most part to, to cover those sorts of visits, which really at the end of the day, right, so much of this is about following the money. Um, and that's going to enable just a tremendous amount, I think, of, of access to folks that may not have it. Um, there's the bucket just around coverage of COVID testing, um, vaccinations, and all of that. Um, obviously, they, they've gotten, the federal government has gotten health insurers in the private sector to agree that they would cover the costs of that. Um, I think that there's, there's got to be money behind that. I'm not exactly sure how that flow will happen. Um, but those tests aren't necessarily cheap. I think they're getting cheaper uh, just mm -hmm. to, as the ingenuity is coming into play. Um, but that testing and, um, and then the question about treatment, which goes back to the first piece, which is there's additional funding because if you look at the length of stay for these patients that have COVID in the ICU setting, um, it's significant. You know? yeah. It is a resource labor capital intensive stay. Yes, it is. And I forget, did you give me um, an average length of stay for a COVID patient earlier today? I don't think so, but I'm sure it's significant. Yeah, it's a couple weeks, I think, is, is wow. kind of it. The, the average length of stay it may have been 11 to 14 days, you know, and we know, um, and I think it's important for, for your listeners to know, obviously the ICU is probably one of the most expensive sure. places to treat a patient. So, um, well, what I think is interesting about the ICU, just to interrupt you one, for one second, yeah. is it, it's not so much the physician in the ICU. The physician obviously has a crucial role, but that's a nurse to patient ratio that is not anywhere seen anywhere else in the hospital. And those, those nurses, you know, that's that's extremely labor intensive. It means they can't be used anywhere else, and their expertise, you know, comes with a cost. I mean, they are an expensive asset. They're not overpriced by any stretch, right. you know. But I think people don't realize that the ICU is not like a med surge floor. I mean, you have a 
one-to-one or two-to-one caregiver ratio that is not seen anywhere else. And that is, that does require extra and enhanced funding. That's a great point. I haven't heard anybody bring that up. And I think you're raising a really interesting point. At the very time when nurses are slammed, right? And I've I've heard from hospital leaders that they're having to transition people from their normal kind of Mm -hmm. course of care, whether it's on a med surge floor or in the ED and kind of cycle them through. Um, Yeah. So really good point, and I think something that um, is significant in terms of how we're going to drive up costs. And then there's the ancillary question about supply, right? Because there is just a huge burnout going on, which will be important to talk about as well. Um, Yeah, I did see the the other day that a big insurer was estimating, or I don't know if it was an insurer or if it was a think tank. Somebody was estimating that health insurance premiums will go up by 40% next year. Wow. And, you know, of course, that will all land in the lap of that's hospital's fault, <laughs> as it often does. I mean, we see that insurer hospital battle, you know, on a good day all the time of insur- hospitals have been driving up costs. You know, they overprice. It's $30,000 for a Band-Aid. You know, insurers have been very good at that narrative. And I'm, you know, I think hospitals are going to have to get their their suitcases packed now with their messages for how are you going to counter that? Because it's coming. I mean, people are not going to be happy. Unemployment's going to be record high and insurance premiums are going to be up, you know, upwards of 40%. I think hospitals are going to have to invest in some communications of, of how they've used the money and, you know, not really could they have done things differently. <laughs> so let me Andy, ask this a question. Is, this is so, Ste- Andy, this is Stephanie's cool. move to this is Stephanie's move to do some major business development with the health plans, you know, because they don't have that much money to spend with the uh, communications team. So really uh, yeah. I guess I guess we won't I guess you won't plan on being on their Christmas list. <laughs> I think that was abbreviated compared to what our internal conversations usually are. Oh I can only imagine. You know, I can only imagine. But you're right, I haven't even thought about that. Um, so you raise an important point, and I wanna make sure that I hear you, which is your belief is that when the bill comes due, people are gonna say, we got all this money out of the CARES Act. Right, exactly. On that list. And so, so why are we paying more now? Because if you're saying that we're paying more now to make up for what it costs right. you. Um, so that says to me, and I'd be curious for your guys' reaction, that says to me, hospitals really need to be, be diligent in um, how they're cost accounting uh, mm-hmm. with regard to uh, with regard to the COVID, you know, and it's that it's that classic kind of cascading impact and effect, right? Which is, you know, don't just look at the patient coming in the door. Look at what that means in mm-hmm. terms of um, the impact to things that you can't do. Um, which is, you know, I think an, an an important point. I'll circle back on. Let me just touch on the fourth bucket. Yeah. Um, and then we can drill down a little bit more. You know, there was 172 billion for HHS in the CARES Act, um, you know, and other related agencies, um, which is really going to the uh, Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response um, to support the, the restocking the, the mm-hmm. national mile. $172 billion, um, you know, and, you know, this whole notion about ventilators and other things um, is very real. I think there's a lot of stories yet to come about that. Um, you know, I think we're fortunate here in Oregon so far, which is um, we're very prepared um, and the worst hasn't happened, but we're looking at New York, LA is quick on the heels and that's what everybody's talking about, right? Mm-hmm. What are we gonna do for ventilators and how are we getting creative? One of the interesting things on that that was also buried in the CARES Act, the Act was there is liability protection 
for anybody that is um, developing either new technology or building their existing technology around ventilators, number one. Hmm. And number two, also around N95 masks. So that liability protection, I think, is intended to incent people to sort of put it into high gear. Mm -hmm. um, but I think those of us that have worked in the advocacy, communications, and legal world for so long, boy, that could be interesting in the future. Yeah, it gives you, gives you a little pause. Yeah, yeah, it does a little bit. You know, that yeah. gives me some concern because I think about my own mom. You yeah. know, gosh, I mean, okay, was this machine, not, not only was it developed effectively, and this may be new technology, but gosh, did this machine get clean? effectively and how do we know that and how do we know that it doesn't you know so there's just so much there i think that um, um that that's important um but those four buckets i think really encapsulate a ton obviously there was there was just an enormous amount in the overall stimulus bill some of which may play into the healthcare sector the health insurance sector um as well you know i think the big question that i have as i read through this is um for standalone physicians I'm not entirely clear kind of what's there for them. Do you guys have a sense of that? Yeah, there was an, actually an article in the Texas Tribune maybe yesterday or Saturday about these kind of independent physicians, outpatient practices, and they're for the first time feeling very vulnerable. You know, they're saying like, we've lost all our patient volume, private payer telehealth hasn't caught up yet. So even if we open our practices virtually, we still can't get paid for it. And if we can, it's not an amount that we could have gotten if the person came in and it's, you know, it's an interesting dynamic that, you know, requires me to dig pretty deep on my sympathy. Um, you know, these are, these are practices that, you know, have set themselves up around not necessarily patient convenience, but, but their own uh, for so long. And now there's, you know, shoes on the other foot. And I think they're feeling very, very vulnerable. And you can't just take a doctor out of a, out of a community practice and plug him or her in a hospital and say, here, go see COVID patients. You know, that's not, that's not how it works. You know, that's where the distribution of these doctors and, and we've encouraged primary care for so many years too. We've discouraged, you know, high, high cost specialty training and, and pushed people into, into primary care. And I think now we're seeing, you know, some of the results of that um, in multiple ways. So that's yeah, we're, we're, we're two for two now on uh, business development. Sorry, messaging it's my Stephanie. fault. It's, yeah, you, you, so, you do what you got to do, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> no, it's good. But I think that both of, yeah, but both of y'all hit on a good point, And that is kind of our next kind of area because of what you're the, the idea of waiving some of the liability on some innovation. And that is that, you know, throughout history, we've seen in major investments, especially with infusion from either the government or private equity. In this case, obviously, we're going to see a massive infusion from government first and then private equity likely to follow. But we've seen those massive um, investments occur and it's been transformative. So you've got the military industrial complex that builds up around times of need. Um, but that, that has often created a huge paradigm shift we talked a little bit about telemedicine. I do have some of those rough numbers and I'm not sure if any of those made in the final bill. So maybe we'll save that for another time to talk about. Um, but in addition to telemedicine, do we see any other areas where potentially there might be a, a, a bit of a paradigm shift? Uh, do we have more of a priority, uh, a fast tracking priority um, or some sort of program at the FDA um, kind of, along the same vein of, uh, of the mass production of the ventilator production. What else do we see here as a potential as far as um, how 
investment or transformation from investment will happen? Well, I'll, I'll kick off, um, and it's something that, you know, I talked to, to Stephanie about earlier today, but um, and I shared with you a little bit, Lance. So um, I, I gained a client over the weekend, and they are a major producer of um, apparel for large international retailers, including their biggest client is Costco, um, uh, Sam's Club, so Walmart, um, TJ Maxx, and other things. When I think about their ingenuity, and granted, seizing an opportunity, I mean, let's, let's call it what it is, they're pivoting and now taking their production lines and creating PPE. Um, and that's the kind of thing that will have a short life to it. I mean, they'll go back when the economy recovers and, um, and rather than having factories sit idle, they'll go back to producing clothing. But in the meantime, um, they're, they're trying to keep supply chain going just in a different world. What's so interesting is I think there are so many companies that are looking at how can they get into this space um, and at lots of different levels. So I don't, there's nothing that sort of jumps out at me off the top of my head with regard to kind of what may be an aha moment for some other um, industry or innovation. What about for you guys? What do you, what are you thinking or hearing? I think largely our, our expectation is that it's going to shift around, um, around telemedicine and, one of the issues, I think the only issue that we've really noticed already is that um, you are going to take people that were hesitant and reluctant to engage in uh, telemedicine from the nurse side and from the physician side, and they are going to be forced into it out of uh, necessity, and they're going to take it on, and they're going to have iterative um, exposure to it, and it's going to go one of two ways, either a, it's going to further uh, solidify their pre-existing opinion around, um, around telemedicine and it's, uh, uh, it's it, their, their favor or disfavor of it, or it's going to really challenge their cognitive dissonance around it. And they're going to have to decide like whether it really did um, not meet their expectations. And so I, I think that's really where we have an opportunity and, our client today that we were talking to about it is they were concerned that there was going to be such a rapid uptake um, because their value proposition really isn't around the technology, isn't solely around the technology. They look at that as kind of their base. Their value proposition is around the delivery and the workflow and the integration with the hospital um, staff and the, and the patient there at the bedside. So uh, to deliver kind of a clinical excellence and quality. So I think to me, the, that, that's where the biggest opportunity exists is to take a, an industry that is hesitant to, to uh, innovate and advance. It's a slow moving ship and that's purposeful as we've discussed before, um, but it's really gonna force them to embrace that, that telemedicine. And now you've got $200 million coming into hospitals to um, advance that. And I think it's interesting um, the way the CARES Act works on this because you've got a five-year grant period that will extend to, I think, 2025 um, to be able to do this. It's focused on some of the nonprofits and rurals um, in, in partnership with uh, anybody, any kind of uh, organization, but there only a certain percentage of that can really be spent um, on, on the actual equipment itself, on the capital costs. So, 
there is a there is a really I think purposeful focus that the feds have on how they're making this investment so that you don't go dump that money into broadband infrastructure that should have already been there so that you That's don't right. go dump that money into places where it doesn't belong and so um, that to me is is somewhat thoughtful and tangential to kind of how we did the implementation of of uh, an investment in EMRs, but I'm not going to go, I'm not going to do yeah. Stephanie's uh, business development uh, strategy yeah. that is going to basically uh, get me in, in trouble with a third category. Of potential. Are you sure? We, we enjoy it okay, so much. Okay. You do. So that was done so swimmingly well that this is where you it's handled that well. You, you know, you kept her from stepping right into the bucket. I've, I've already got people on the record and published. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, let me tell you. I give you a personal experience about, about what you're talking about. So first of all, um, my own experience with regard to technology was really fascinating to me. My, my last five, I, I went on my medical record and look, my last five visits to the doctor, four of them have been on my phone through hmm. video and they've been terrific. I mean, no problem. I, I had, um, I had a walking pneumonia case last year and the only downside, uh, every, my, my family was away. I couldn't get the meds. I was too sick to drive to get the meds. So that's, you know, I think I'm hearing about a lot of home delivery of medications mm -hmm. and other things. Um, so, you know, there's, there's pieces that I think will be helpful. But now let me tell you about a flip side and, and where an opportunity had been lost that I think could be gained again. And that is that um, my staff, when I was running the Oregon Association of Hospitals and Health Systems, um, was able to, to get a uh, big chunk of money from the state to sort of innovate rural healthcare. And one of the things that they did was to work with um, a primary care telemedicine practice um, uh, that happened to be based in Washington state. So the first thing was you had to work on licensure mm -hmm. you know, to make sure that, that, that you had a compact and you could have joint licensure, right. check the box. The second piece that never got resolved was the ability for Medicaid to pay for those services. Mm -hmm. And in so many of those rural communities where Medicaid and Medicare, the preponderance of the payer mix, you know, upwards of 80, 85, 90%, um, it, it made it untenable. And um, uh, what was to be a really well-funded startup um, effort with a company that was already well ensconced and in place and had great docs and great outcomes, it sort of stalled out. Um, uh, and, you know, we even had hospitals that were willing to make co-payments and other things for their patients in order to be seen that way. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I do think that would be an example of, again, it's Davidson's rule of following the money. If you can make, if you can make it so that you can get paid for those services post all of this, um, that, that'll be really interesting. And I do want to go back and read about the five-year piece um, and understand if that includes payment for services over that five years. Um, what was your take on that, Lance? I, I don't think it does. It's really to establish uh, the the capital side of it. And yeah. so, um, but what's interesting is that the the to set that up is that the purchase and the or the lease of the equipment can't be greater than uh, forty percent of the total grant that's given. But it is an increase from um, what was originally, I guess, in 2008 to 2012, a $45 million grant program to, for, to a new uh, $79 million. And, and that's just in the rural, uh, the rural uh, program. So I think- I think, Andy, to your point about the, about the, the payment here, you know, we have an opportunity here either to 
knock it out of the park or completely blow it, you know, because those that enhanced Medicare payment is temporary. And if telemedicine doesn't take this opportunity now to do this work incredibly well, that is one bite at the apple, you know, so we have to we have to do it well um, if we want that those payments to, to stay because we could end up, you know, investing in the infrastructure, but the payments gone. That's right. Um, once COVID-19 goes away, which segues, I think, into our next question, um, which is about what hospitals need to be communicating right now to their boards and communities. And I think we've touched on it a little bit in our discussion about, you know, we got to start talking about what are you spending the stimulus money on? What, what are you using it for right now? And that cost accounting and, and talking about how you're using it. And then I think hospitals need to talk a little bit about, you know, when you start restricting elective surgeries. What does that do to your bottom bottom line? Um, you know, you've taken away a revenue source and particularly for rural hospitals that probably don't have ICU beds and are likely if and when they get COVID-19 patients are gonna have to transfer them to larger tertiary facilities. So you're sort of slapping them on both hands. You're taking away their ability to do elective surgeries and procedures, which is how they generate the revenue. And they're likely not going to be caring for these COVID-19 patients and getting the, the enhanced uh, DRG payments. I mean, that's all extremely complicated stuff that, that most people won't have the attention span to, to attend to. But I think that's the kind of stuff that hospitals have to start talking at least to their boards about because it will start showing up very quickly you know, on, on financial statements. So I, I turn it over to you, Andy, about what you what you think hospitals need to start talking about now. Well, um, boy, if, if ever there were a time, this is the time that hospitals can tell their story. Yeah. Right. And, um, and I think to your point, Stephanie, giving concrete examples of what's happening and being very honest um, about what's happening, whether that's good news or bad news, I think is really critical. And I think that that honest conversation needs to start with um, their staff and that mm -hmm. honest conversation needs to start with their governing boards. Um, because at the end of the day, both of those bodies, if you will, um, are looking for um, uh, a sense of the truth and a sense of what's mm -hmm. really going on, a sense of most importantly, how's this gonna affect me um, uh, and, and my family? And, um, you know, that's, when I thought about your question, I thought a lot about how important it really is that um, you communicate early and you communicate often, you communicate um, uh, very honestly with, with those audiences. That then obviously cascades out into your world, which you're so good at, which is how do you then take, it, take those messages out to the community? Um, and I guess I'm kind of simple-minded. I think you tell them the same story. You yeah. Know? But let me give you a good example. So over the weekend, I talked to a friend of mine who runs, um, you know, a, a pretty large health system in the state. And he happens to be in a geography um, where they don't have very many cases right now. Mm -hmm. But yet there was a blanket order. And I think, it, you know, I'm not a clinician, but it was probably very wise. There was a blanket order by the governor to stop all elective surgery mm -hmm. in every hospital. Well, there went the bulk of his revenue. Mm -hmm. And for one of his hospitals, almost all of their revenue, they're, they're really a small, they're a small hospital that, that specializes in orthopedics. And, um, you know, you'll still have your car crash victim and, and those that are, are having other issues. But at the end of the day, he, he's, you know, the whole notion, kind of the, the story that you get kind of when people start to whisper is, well, yeah, but we're going to make, we're going to be able to make some of that revenue up <laughs> because of the intensity of treating a COVID patient and the revenue that's tied to it. 
I don't think it's ever going to make it up for a lot of, for a lot of hospitals. Yeah. And I think it's important to be honest about that. The question comes, and I think what, what the three of us have done for a preponderance of our career um, is to be either an apologist for hospitals and health systems or their greatest advocate. Um, but I think that from an advocacy perspective, people are going to smell smoke and they're going to smell BS. Um, mm -hmm. Boy, if there's really a time to redefine and to get out of the spin zone, I, I feel strongly that this is it. Um, what do you guys think? Well, I think, you know, um, it kind of leads into that, the other part of uh, the, the thing that Stephanie and I always try to make clear to people, and that is that, you know, hospitals are not giant monoliths, and their uh, hospitals themselves um, are, are, you know, are, are, are unique from one side of town to another. It depends on what they're filled with. Um, while some physicians and certain practices might be commoditized, hospitals themselves very much are not. And so um, in the same way then, um, I think what the country isn't understanding, and I was having a, a conversation with somebody the other day who was bothered by there not seeming to be one central place we go to for that you can count on for all the information. I was like, well, that's kind of the way it's designed because what is needed in Dallas County is not what is needed in uh, McAllen down on the border and what's going on in Oregon is not anything even close to what's going on in um, Enid, Oklahoma. Uh, so so the, the point is, is that um, the, the number of uninsured is going to be an issue, the healthcare that's needed in each of those communities uh, respectively are going to be disparate from one to the next. Um, and I think that that's a, a something that's going to be very difficult to communicate to someone who to a legislator who has been able to dine out for 10 years on being for or against Obamacare. And now we've got a country that has to rapidly, rapidly wrap their hands around something that is super, super complex. But we've been allowing legislators, uh, politicians to get away with having a a platform that was either pro or against, pro or con on uh, pro, for or against Obamacare. And, and Stephanie and I talked that in 2016, there was one presidential candidate on the Republican ticket that had anything about healthcare on their uh, online platform. He's, he's not president. Um, so I noticed that. <laughs> yeah. But it's Ted uh, Cruz, right? Who is by all Ted accounts. Cruz killing it as a, as a Senate statesman these days. So silver lining. Crazy. Crazy. So, crazy. so how do we get people, I guess what I'm saying is what I'm concerned about is how do we get people to rapidly embrace that um, when really what they're going to do is really default to what's probably easy. And that's going to be our hospital lawns filled up with big giant cards that are thanking our hero nurses. I mean, that's, that's not advocacy, that's appreciated. I think that's important recognition of who's really sacrificing their time right now in our community. But um, the fact of the matter is that that was going on before this. You're right, you're right. Stephanie, what are, what, what are your thoughts on that? I'd just be curious about your take as yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, I think this is hospitals time to, to reinvest in their staff, you know, on, on all levels. You know, what are hospital leaders telling their staffs or are they just treating their staff like a commodity too? You know, we we did hear from a hospital leader a couple of years ago of 
I'm not going to talk to my staff about supplemental payments and budget shortfalls and Medicaid underpayment. And we were just so perplexed by that statement because why would you not, why would you purposefully alienate your workforce from your key issues? If that funding doesn't exist, if that funding isn't continued and isn't stable, they won't get to continue that, their work. And he jumped on that point and he said, well, that's exactly it. I don't want them to think that their positions are so vulnerable. And I, I mean, it was just this bizarre chicken and right. egg situation of, but then they're going to advocate. They're going to more deeply understand their work and going to advocate in their communities in organic natural settings. And then that will cascade out. And I think it's the same with boards too. And you're, you're the expert on, on that, but you know, in rural hospitals in particular, you've got the president of the bank, you know, or a retired sheriff who sits on the board. They don't know anything about healthcare other than what their personal experiences have been. They know they want to volunteer and serve and be a good steward in their community, but they don't have any kind of sophistication of knowledge of healthcare financing. And so I think CEOs have to spend too much time probably, you know, constantly explaining the balance sheet and why it looks as kooky as it does. Um, so I think this is hospital's moment to just say, we are all in this together and that's not a cliche. And I'm gonna start by communicating, by being honest, by telling that story, not a spin, not any kind of PR, but I'm gonna you know, honestly explain the, the situation. Starting, you know, charity starts at home, starting in your own, you know, in your own house, in your own walls. Um, well, I, I, if, if there's a takeaway for me from the conversations we've had and, and the conversation that we're having right now, I think that's it. Um, it's almost, it's almost like the slate has been cleared. Mm -hmm. You know, the whiteboard is now empty. Um, and it's the opportunity to do exactly that because I do, I do think that people feel like we're all in it together. Yeah. Yeah. There have been outlier stories about sure about CEOs being holed up and not walking the hall right. in Florida, right? But at the end of the day, I've talked to so many who are there every single day trying to do all they can to be supportive of their staff. And yeah. I think to the point that we're talking about, this is the chance to then be informative. Because to, to your point, when you get to the notion of advocacy, right? And those of us that have played in that world know better than anybody, um, when you're a hospital association person, you're a paid mouthpiece. Mm -hmm. You're the CEO of the hospital. You're in essence a paid mouthpiece. But when your board chair shows up to have that conversation with right. the member of Congress or the Senate president, that's really different. When your chief nurse shows up or mm -hmm. a frontline nurse and can tell the story about what they've been through, um, I mean, this is really healthcare's opportunity mm -hmm. to not only be seen as the heroes that they are, um, but to have a, a deeper conversation about. Um, our stability is not just around having folks have insurance. It's no. not just around the ACA debate. What else is it about? And I think that's the story that has to be told and, um, and we've got to fill in the blank. And, you know, I think Lance touched on something that seems really critical as well, which is that story is going to be a little bit different in every community. Mm. And so I think when you start to distill messaging upward, wh whether it's at a state hospital association level, it gets harder. Right? There'll be some common themes in Texas based on your regulatory environment and payment models and other things. But now it gets even harder and you're having to distill to just a few key messages when you get up to the, the national association level. And I think this is a chance 
for hospitals really to tell their story mm -hmm. and, and for them to tell it. Um, uh, you know, and I'm sure that, that there are leaders who say, but I don't know how to do that. Well, there's your opportunity. I'm thinking about exactly. the two of you. Exactly. There you go. Yeah, I got a few phone calls and emails that uh, that they could send, but um, <laughs> but uh, you're absolutely right. I think uh, I think that's and again, I think some downward pressure from some of those board chairs are really where it needs to be, and not just at the uh, not just hospital boards, but um, hospital association boards as well to actually raise their hands and ask some hard questions for some hard truths to be told, and how they ask that question is really going to matter. Um, and, and so, so yeah, so speaking of that, Andy, you know, uh, having been um, at the Oregon Hospital Association for 14 years, um, if, if, you were, if you were there now, what, what do you think your time would be spent on and what would be keeping you up at night um, that might be different from what kept you up at night before? Uh -huh. um, you know, my sense is in, in talking to the folks that are there, it's... Um, it is minute by minute, you know, and I think as a leader, it's so easy. And I, and I will be honest, I was the worst offender at this. I could get, I was really good at the minute to minute, um, <laughs> but it kept me from thinking about the, the, the longer term. Um, and I just, I don't think we're there yet. So I don't think that, that um, uh, you know, our colleagues and friends in the association world are at a point where they could, or maybe even should be thinking about what's next. They have to be thinking about how are we dealing with this right now? Um, and, uh, and that's a big task, you know, so um, that, that makes me nervous for them, right? Uh, but there will come a time, and I don't know when that tipping point is, but that time will come when um, they'll be able to shift and make a change um, uh, in, in doing that. Excuse me for just one second. I'd be happy to give you your books in just a minute. So give me just a second. Thank you. All right. Um, so that was my niece who uh, is from Australia and is here with us um, and is wow. got a class that starts in a few minutes. So I got to give her. Um, <laughs> yeah, that sounds your, pretty cool. But you know, your BBC I, dad moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. I'm glad I, I I'm glad I, I probably didn't handle that well, but um, uh, oh, anyway, we can go up this class. So anyway, I, it's a great question that you're asking. And, um, you know, I think the, the, the thing that I'm not clear about is when is that tipping point? And, and can you begin to start to think and have the bandwidth to think about now what is that next step? So we've talked about one component, which is, um, you know, how are you going to tell your story? Mm -hmm. I think that the, the other component that really concerns me, you guys, and, and um, we haven't spent much time talking about this, but I'll put it in the context of quality, right? Nobody's having yet a conversation that I could find about is the care in the ICU and treating COVID um, being done in an efficacious um, and quality driven way. Now for organizations that have focused on quality and that, that this goes to every hospital and every community, I'm sure that it is. But another component of quality is not just the clinical care, but it's the notion about resilience of your staff and burnout. Uh, and what I know was when I got ready to leave in December of last year um, into retirement, I had limited resilience as an advocate for hospitals and the people that, that, that work there. I felt burned out and I'm not in the front lines and they were already so burned out. Mm -hmm. um, and now here we go. Um, 
what is going to happen? And I'm so concerned for the workforce, you know, and there were lots of provisions in the CARES Act for, for the workforce, but at the end of the day, it's a human element, you know, and they're having to go home and be moms and dads. I mean, I'm sure that you guys have watched some of these videos of docs and nurses in New York city telling their story. I mean, it's the, my family and I watched some of it last night. It was so oh, yeah. Just well, so not only that, but I mean, so you bring up a, a good point in that that's one that Stephanie and I were exposed to where finally one, one hospital leader spoke up in a board meeting and said, hey, you know what? And it was in particularly on the opioid crisis. Um, and they were like, kind of enough is enough. You know, we've been asked to do probably we've been asked to stretch, we've been asked to do more. And this is kind of outside the realm of our responsibility and the, the particular program that they were referring to. And while it was um, altruistic and good, it was, it was beyond the stretch that we've been asked of, whether we've asked our hospitals to, to go and invest in yet again. I mean, see the previous EMR statement. Yes. Mars were supposed to solve everything. Well, it turns out you have to have an app for that. Do you have an app for that? Do you have an app for that? Oh, it's going to cost you to plug that in. I, I, I'll stop. Um, so I think the point was, hey, you're, you, you know, you're already burned out. Now we're going to have the ultimate burnout on top of having for 10 years asked you to stretch and stretch some more and stretch some more and stretch some more. So um, yeah, that concerns so, yeah. me. Can, can I just make one other point? It ties back to something you asked about. I am seeing staffing agencies just explode, um, you know, and finding, f finding clinical staff that want to kind of walk into the front line, I think it's probably getting hard. Um, and a lot of that translates to it's probably just got, gotten a lot more expensive. Um, yeah. But folks that I know that are running staffing agencies, you know, I think in a lot of ways, they're, they're, yeah, their business is doing well, but I view them as a critical component of what we're facing right now. Well, so I think they're a critical component. I think ultimately for a staffing agency, the struggle is not necessarily um, placement. You know, if you're running a staffing agency, your problem is supply. Like you can't actually right. go out and produce, you're not, a, you're not a factory floor where you can produce more nurses um, or, or more technical staff. You have to go out there and search it out and cultivate it and harvest it. And that's going to be a problem for them, especially when they go out and realize that there are employees that are already happy at one hospital. Now, what do I have to do to incent them to go across the street to work for the other? And you have basically this increasing cost associated with trying to um, get one to go for another and a hospital is going to, to be having, a, to your point, it's going to make it more expensive hourly. Not that we weren't already there in the first place. I mean, it was already problematic as far as um, nurse staffing shortages and, and things like that. But um, so do you think that you're going to be seeing an increase in the amount of hours that they're all willing to and being asked to commit? Um, and, and maybe that is an opportunity or, you know, coming from, I, w I grew up in the oil patch. So I know that when you have three, when you have 3% unemployment, that's good, but you also have, it's a major risk issue because you have guys, when you have 3% unemployment, you will take anybody that has a set of legs and arms out there on that rig. And so you get a lot of drug abuse, you get a lot of alcohol abuse, and it is on the rig. So I'm not saying that we're going to have all of a sudden, 
users out there in our hospitals. But at that point, do, you, do we have a drop in quality? And it's a ton of other issues that we're going to be having to, to deal with as hospitals, I suppose. And that's, that's kind of what you're referencing, I suppose, is, as our staffing challenges. Yeah, I mean, I think you raise, I think you raise a really interesting point. Um, it's not just about things costing more. Now you've got less of a team spirit. You've got less of an integrated staff who have worked together for a long time. You get these people coming in, they got to learn the policies, procedures, EMRs and other things um, in that hospital. And, and ultimately that's something that, that you got to look at. Um, I, I think it's interesting. I do think it's an area though that um, really could, could burgeon. I was reflecting back as I was thinking about our conversation today. So I came in to run the association in 2005. And at that time, the association was just in the front end of an important initiative, which was around um, building the workforce, particularly for nurses, um, because the shortage estimates you all remember were so deep. Um, and we put so much work and energy and effort into that. And then in 2008, the bottom dropped out of the market. And guess what? Mm -hmm. Nobody in Oregon retired. Um, and, you know, they couldn't afford to. Well, now what I'm trying to play with a little bit is you got the same economic mm -hmm. issue which is there's a whole chunk of, of nurses, physicians, and other clinicians right on the verge, I think, of, of ready, readiness for retirement. Bottoms dropped out of their own retirement plans, I'm sure like yours and mine. Um, but do they have the resilience and the energy to continue? Um, and I don't think any of us know the answer to that, but I'm not sure that we can look at 2008 through 2010-ish um, uh, to, to inform us because the level of burnout is just so much higher uh, today. Yeah. Hey, let yeah, me ask I, you guys a question be about, um, about uh, Medicaid expansion. Uh, Never heard of it. We're in Texas. We don't know what you're talking about. Well, exactly. So, <laughs> so here's, here's what's interesting, and I'm curious because I have to imagine it's, it's similar. So Oregon, of course, expanded to the, the nth degree. I mean, as, as broad as we could. And it, and it was, I mean, forget whatever your political affiliation is, it was incredible for patients. I mean, just incredible. Um, and it continues to be. And you know what? For a couple of years, it was awesome for hospitals. Um, and then as what happens, you get into that sort of, I call it the sawtooth of, of, of um, margin, you know? And so, yeah, margins went up and then they dropped. It was the most precipitous drop we had ever seen um, about three and a half years after the ACA. And they've evened out, but there's still that flex the flexibility there. But one of the things that somebody said to me as system CEO here in the state is, hey, Davidson, don't forget, our biggest growth area in uncompensated care is not around people that don't have insurance. It's around people that have insurance and have plans. They can't make their co-pays, deductibles, and other things. Right. And, you know, when I think about that comment, and you overlay it to the cost of, mm -hmm. of COVID, I don't know enough out of the CARES Act. I mean, I literally have a three ring notebook here and I've got to go in and read it deeper for this, but are they gonna help patients make up for that? Something tells me the answer is no. Right, so, so flip it now, go to the other side. Are hospitals gonna be expected, or, or I guess, have hospitals been given the opportunity to not have to eat that through these additional payments and that's part of the reason they did it? Right, because I, I think one of the toughest things that, that, that I experienced as, as kind of the mouthpiece for hospitals for so long was that policymakers didn't understand it. They thought as soon as somebody had insurance, your problems are gone. Mm -hmm. Well, theirs were. <laughs> right. <laughs> so. Yes, yes. 
Well, so Andy, I can imagine I, I, in a state like Texas, um, you're going you're gonna to potentially have both. You're going mm -hmm. to have folks coming in that have no coverage. And then you're going to have this issue about those that have coverage but can't pay their portion. And Lord knows it's going to be a big number. I mean, how many people have plans that are five or $10,000 first dollar out of pocket? Yeah. No, I mean, that, that's so exactly the thing that we've been ignoring for the last 10 years while we've been over here having this meaningless conversation because we've been led down that path by 24-hour news networks, either one on the right or one on the left, I'm not naming names, you can pick, pick yours in Oregon, I can guess which one is the most <laughs> frequently uh, watched, and you can guess in my state which one is. Um, but we've neglected the opportunity of comparing certain entities and their stock value against the S&P, do that comparison, and that should tell you the conversation we should have been having around the point you just made, and that is you've got these super huge premiums, you've got these super huge costs now associated with that, when are you going to make that line come back together to say, oh, I've got this huge out-of-pocket, I've got this huge monthly cost that's shared by my employer, so it's hidden from me largely. It's, I'm blind to it to a, a large degree. Why again do I have all of this money out-of-pocket? Why now am I going into medical debt in spite of the fact that I have um, insurance coverage? And I think Stephanie hinted at this earlier, but ultimately that's the fight that's going to occur. It's going to be between the health plans and the hospitals and COVID uh, ultimately put a delay to what is an inevitable fight because it was coming on Medicare for all that, that fight and the cost of cost of care was, was coming at us at full force in the uh, primarily in the, the democratic primary. But now I think we'll see a, a delay, but it's, it's going to come back at some point. Boy, that's a great point. The COVID delay. I, I wrote that down and put quotes the around. COVID delay. Hashtag yeah. the COVID delay. Like, what else? I, you know, <laughs> Stephanie's mainly concerned because the COVID delay has only uh, delayed uh, Tom Brady's advance into spring training. So, um, <laughs> really? That, that's all she's worried about. This is a conversation for another time. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Well, Andy, this is uh, great. And again, I'm glad that we were able to get you again. Stephanie, for a long time, has, has fangirled over kind of your approach to leadership as a hospital association leader. And so I'm glad you've really uh, spent some time with us. And again, as expected, a great conversation. And we've got to do it again. We're, we'll probably have to break this into three pieces. But. <laughs> well, that'd be really fun. And um it was it was great to re-engage. This this was helpful. Thank you both All very right. much. Appreciate oh, we appreciate it so much. Thank you. All right, look forward to catching up again soon. All right, Thanks, kid. Andy. Thank you. Andy. Take care. Thanks.